So first Peter chapter four, uh, we're going to cover only the first six verses today of first Peter four. Um, and I think there is strong uh, encouragement and, uh, and real exhortation here. Uh, for us as God's people. And remember that the whole context of the book of this letter of Peter, the apostle Peter to uh, Christians in Asia Minor uh, is one of uh, encouragement to endure suffering. Um, We we think that probably by this time, probably mid sixties AD is when Peter writes this letter. By this time, probably we're not yet to uh, the peak of persecution of Christians in uh, the Roman Empire uh, that would, would come uh, down the road um, another 30 or 40 years or so, probably we would see probably the things that you have read about or, or seen movies even that depict Christians being thrown into the arena with lions and uh, being uh, truly martyred and persecuted in, in the most extreme ways uh, for their faith. Um, that probably isn't happening yet as Peter writes this letter. So, so the, the persecution that Christians were facing at this point is probably mostly at the level of social um, marginalization, right? Social uh, ostracizing. So people uh, look down on them. People mock their faith. People probably exclude them from various um, uh, gatherings and sort of social ordinances that, that the community would be used to because they see Christians as strange. They see Christians as not even faithful citizens because they are pledging allegiance to some other king who is not Caesar, right? And so uh, there, there's a lot of a difficulty that comes to the Christian community through just social pressure. And I think in a lot of ways, uh, th- th- it's very readily uh, identifiable for, for us where we live in 21st century uh, America, um, we're not suffering persecution to the extent of um, imprisonment and destruction of property and and death, uh, certainly, although there are places in the world where that happens even now. Um, but we do experience a, a real social pressure uh, to uh, perhaps to let go of our outdated beliefs or whatever. People think of us as, you know, as hateful uh, because we have certain maybe categories for sin uh, that our culture just rejects. Um, the, the, we reject our culture rejects the notion of sin almost altogether. Um, because who are you to tell me how I should live or who I should be? Right, and so it's this it's this uh, expressive individualism sort of on steroids uh, that our culture sort of swims in, and because of that any claim or any appeal to an authority outside of us, like God, any appeal to a morality um, that has boundaries and limits and, and um, standards by which to live feels very oppressive to our culture. And so as Christians simply stay put and proclaim what Christians have proclaimed for 2,000 years, we increasingly are on the outside of our society. And so Peter writes to Christians facing similar kinds of pressure and and rejection with encouragement to persevere. And uh, we find more of these uh, these, uh, encouragements today. And in fact, there's a strong exhortation here. I've titled this message simply, Arm Yourselves. And you'll see why. You'll see that language uh, at the very beginning of this chapter. And, And it is more of a, here's how we sort of 
take a defense against the, the attacks that may come our way as we try to be faithful to Christ. So I'm going to read for you 1 Peter 4, verses 1 through 6. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Three ways that Peter tells us uh, to arm ourselves. So I want to just point out that, that very first phrase, since therefore Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, with the same way of thinking. So he's going to tell us to arm ourselves for three different uh, struggles or realities, uh, three different realities that we will face. And we must prepare ourselves. We must arm ourselves in order to be ready to defend in these situations. The first one is this. Arm yourselves for suffering. Arm yourselves for suffering. And this is not new in First Peter. Again, if you were to read First Peter in one sitting, as the original readers uh, certainly did, this over and over and over and over would be the theme that you come away with. As you leave the, the reading of this letter, your mind would be ringing with the realities that life in this world as Christians will be hard, but that God will carry us through it with a future glory beyond our imagination. So that is the, the consistent message throughout First Peter. And so arm yourselves for suffering. And he points, he begins by pointing us to Christ and his example. Once again, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Well, what way of thinking is that? It's the way of thinking that Christ himself employed. It's the way that Jesus thought about his life, about his mission, about the suffering that he would have to endure. So when he says, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, he's saying, think like Christ. Arm yourselves with a mindset that resembles how Christ pursued and, and went into his life and his mission and endured his suffering. This is military language. To arm yourself is to get your armor on and your weapons at the ready. Like this is uh, to prepare to enter battle. You don't arm yourself in a time of peace. You arm yourself in time of war. And so that is where, where we live. We live in a time of war, of spiritual warfare, where, where there is, are battles in the spiritual realm that we can't see that express themselves in all kinds of ways, in, in sin 
and fleshiness and carnality in philosophies that are enemies of God and of the gospel, in, in belief systems and worldviews that erase God or, or his ways from the picture. There, there is war. And we are in a time of war. And the exhortation here is so important, is to think like Christ. Arm yourselves with a way of thinking. That is your weapon. That is your defense in this time of war. So friends, don't underestimate the importance of how you think. Don't underestimate the importance of what you believe about life, about God, about yourself, about the, the, the experience that you think you should or will have in this world. The way that we think is extremely important for how we endure the hardship that will come our way. If you think to yourself, the Christian life should be easy. I should not be expected to suffer or to sacrifice If that's the way that you think, even at a subconscious level, you will be decimated by the waves of hardship that strike against your home. We must be prepared, and we must prepare ourselves by thinking rightly, thinking like Christ about suffering. Jesus did not think for a moment that he had uh, an easy road to walk or that he would live in this world unstained by, uh, by, uh, by pain and by, and by hardship, and by suffering. In fact, the scriptures call him a man of sorrows, acquainted with griefs. Jesus knew that the road that he would walk would lead him ultimately to the cross, where he would be nailed there to die in shame and mockery as a criminal, though he had done nothing wrong. Christ knew that suffering was a part of his mission, and he braced himself for it. And we ought to do the same thing. The unprepared mind is an easy target for Satan's schemes. The unprepared mind is an easy target for Satan's schemes. If he wants to derail you, Christian, with temptations or hardships that take your eyes off of God, if you are not ready, if you have a mindset that says, As long as I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing, things should go okay. You will not be prepared when suffering comes. And we know that it will come. If you're not in a season of suffering right now, it's around the corner, right? Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of heaven. Arm yourselves with this way of thinking, being prepared for the suffering that will come our way. And he says this, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Well, that that cannot mean that when we suffer, we're instantly zapped with holiness, right? Or that somehow we we attain perfect, you know, sinless uh, perfection in in this life. That's not to be. uh, That's not consistent with Peter's own doctrine and teaching or the teaching of the rest of the New Testament. So this doesn't mean that when you suffer, you are instantaneously perfectly holy and don't sin anymore. All right. We still struggle with sin. That actually will be part of the next point. Uh, so, so what does it mean? What is, the, what is the relationship between a Christian's willingness to suffer for Christ's sake and his ceasing from sin? And I'll quote the, the commentator and theologian Tom Schreiner. He says, the commitment to suffer is evidence 
that we have broken with a life of sin. The commitment to suffer reveals a passion for a new way of life, a life that is not yet perfect, but remarkably different from the lives of unbelievers in the Greco-Roman world, speaking of Christians in, in that day. And of course, that would be true of us as well. So he who has suffered has ceased from sin. What that means is when we make the decision, I know I must suffer for the cause of Christ. And so I'm going to arm myself. I'm going to prepare myself by his spirit to endure that suffering for his sake, for his glory. We have made a, a break of sorts with sin. We, we have said, I don't want to live in sin. I want to live for the Lord. And that is all fleshed out in the very next phrase. Let's look at this. So whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. There's what it comes down to. It's a statement of allegiance. I'm no longer loyal to my own desires, my own passions. I am loyal to God and his will, to God and his kingdom. That the Christian has shifted his allegiance from the fulfilling of his uh, the desires of his flesh to living for the will of God. And Jesus himself gave us that example as well. If you think about his prayer in the garden of Gethsemane, right before he went to the cross, Lord, if there's any way for this cup to pass from me and yet not what I will, but what you will, right? Not my will, but your will be done. And so we are to live not for our own passions and pleasure, but for the will of God. And there's a mindset here. Knowing that suffering will come if we're faithful to Christ, suffering, we will invite hardship because of that faith. And when we decide to do that and to prepare ourselves and to say, I am going to be faithful to Christ by God's grace, even when suffering comes, we are demonstrating a new allegiance. Our allegiance is no longer to our own human passions, but to the will of God. And he says uh, to, to live this way for the rest of the time in the flesh. And we don't know how long that is, how long each of us has individually before the Lord calls us home, how long this world will go on before Christ returns and establishes a new heaven, a new earth and brings in, ushers in his eternal kingdom. We don't know. But for however long that is, however long we have, we are to live not for our own passions, but for the will of God. So let's purpose in our hearts to live for his glory instead of our own pleasure. And that's exactly what Jesus did, isn't it? He did not come to be served, he said, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Arm yourselves for suffering by thinking like Jesus did about suffering as it related to his life and mission. So here's a gut check question for us. Each one of us can just look inside and ask this question. Are you living more for God's will or for your own pleasure or comfort? That's a hard question uh, to think about. And I think if we're honest, probably uh, some moments we'd say, yeah, we're living for God's glory. And a lot of other moments, not so much. But the call here is to prepare for suffering. And the way that we do that is by settling in our hearts, purposing in our hearts to live for his will and not for our own pleasure. 
arm yourselves for suffering. In verses three and four, we see a second way that he exhorts us to arm ourselves, and that's this. Arm yourselves for temptation. Arm yourselves for temptation. Look at, look at those verses. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. And then he lists a bunch of stuff. We'll get to that in just a minute. But what I want to point out right away is that that, that phrase, what the Gentiles want to do, is actually the very same language uh, as what he said about the will of God. So there's a play here on words and an intentional contrast that Peter is making. We want to live no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. And then he says the time that has passed suffices for doing the will of the Gentiles. Right. So we don't want to we want to live for the will of God, not for the will of the world. Right. So not on our own human passions, but also not the will of the world, the, the desires and passions uh, and entertainments and delights and enticements that the world places in front of us all the time. And he says the time that is past suffices. Uh, now, I, I think of that being kind of like a dad coming into a room where his kids are bickering and fighting with each other and their voices are raising and uh, the tensions are running high and, and it gets louder and more intense until finally the dad says enough. My kids have never heard me say that. Right. Just kidding. But dad says enough. And he doesn't mean by that. Okay. You've fulfilled a, an adequate amount of bickering and fighting uh, and, and, uh, and arguing. And so now let's move on to something else. What it is just saying, it's time for that to stop. I, that is, this is done. We don't need to go this route anymore. And that's kind of what, what Peter is saying here about uh, the life of sin that the world indulges in. He calls them here the Gentiles. And again, he means unbelievers, which is just another example of the fact that Peter sees the church, Christians, as part of the true Israel the new people of God. And so Gentiles become shorthand for unbelievers, right? People who are not in the family of God. He doesn't mean literally that people who are not Jewish are not part of the people of God. He's actually gone to great pains to show that in chapter two. I'd encourage you to go back and read those verses uh, for your own edification. So it's enough. The time that has passed, and many of these people in the original audience would have been Gentile converts to Christianity. So they lived in these pagan, godless, worldly ways. And now their conversion to Christ has led, a, led them to a distinct difference in lifestyle. And he says the, the time that has passed is enough. It suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. And then we get a nice list of sins. Uh, New Testament writers love to do this. Uh, list out varying ways that fallen people can rebel against God. And here's one such list. Uh, sensuality and passions are related to bodily desires. The word sensuality has the idea of being a slave to your bodily impulses. Whatever your body desires, you just blindly follow and do it. If your body, if you Want, if you have the desire to eat something, it doesn't matter if you're hungry. It doesn't matter if it's healthy. It doesn't matter uh, if it's indulgent or excessive. You are a slave to that desire, and so you do it. If there are uh, sexual desires and impulses, then the body just goes right along and blindly follows it, no matter if it breaks boundaries of 
uh, of marital covenant and and of the morality that Christ calls us to. Right. So th- th- this anything th- there's more than just those two examples, but any sort of bodily desire that we just must fulfill. And we're absolutely slave to our bodily desires. That's what he means by sensuality and passions. And then he goes into uh, some social settings here. He talks about drunkenness, which is in itself really just excessive use of alcohol that inhibits your ability to reason and to be under control. Right. And so we see throughout the Bible um, Drinking alcohol is not prohibited. Wine is not seen as wicked, but drunkenness is consistently condemned as sinful uh, because we're placing ourselves under the control of something other than the spirit of God. That's Paul's argument in Ephesians chapter five. And we see that in other places as well. So drunkenness, uh, orgies and drinking parties seem to be very closely connected with one another. These are wild worldly parties where just about every conceivable sin is on display, right? Uh, people indulge in, in these various ways uh, and, and related to excessive drinking related to sexual sin specifically, all of these things kind of wrapped up in this, these parties, which apparently were very common in the Greco Roman world in the first century. And they're not that uncommon in 21st century America. Uh, if you have been paying attention at all. And so, again, there's this list of ways that the world lives and they provide real temptations for Christians even now. And then the final thing he calls out is lawless idolatry. And that really may be literal idol worship, because, again, in this context to which he's writing these in the Greco-Roman world, many of these uh, Christians were converted out of an idol-worshipping system where they deified the emperor and they were, uh, to be a good citizen of Rome was to not just give allegiance to, to the emperor, but even to worship him as a god of sorts. That was a part of, uh, of what it meant to be a good citizen. Uh, and Christians, obviously, have made a break with that and have uh, only named Jesus Christ as king. Um, and so they've come from this idolatry, but it may bring a, a temptation for them to stumble back into it, mostly because probably of the social pressure of it, which is exactly what he says very next. Right. So he gives this list of vices, ways that the world lives that you used to live. But now you live differently. And so there's this. This voice, the siren call, if you will, of temptation, trying to pull you back into these sinful and broken and disordered ways of living. And he says, uh, the very next phrase is that uh, with respect to this, this is verse four, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. I think he's intentionally used the word flood here uh, to refer us uh, to, to hearken back in our minds to the, the example that he gave of Noah in our passage last week, chapter three, verses 18 through 22, where he speaks of Noah coming safely through the flood. And then he spoke of how that relates to our baptism, how Christians have come safely through the, the waters of judgment through faith in Christ and have now been raised uh, with him. Um, and so he uses the language of flood here, this flood of debauchery, just broken, messy, 
ugly, mucky, sinful stuff, right? This flood of debauchery. And he says, they're surprised when you don't participate in the same things. And they're not only surprised, but they insult you. They mock you. I think one translation, I don't remember if it was NIV, or, or, but there's one translation that says that they, they verbally abuse you. And you might receive that kind of a treatment, especially if, especially if you were saved out of such a lifestyle. Listen, I'm a church kid. I grew up in church. I was always the good kid, which doesn't mean that I was actually close to God or right with God. Um, but outwardly speaking, nobody would have thought of me as a wild person, right? Um, and so my story is a little bit different than some. Some people lived this very kind of worldly, reckless, wild kind of way. And then God got a hold of them through the gospel of Christ and, and removed them from it and placed their feet on something sturdy and something lasting. And I think for, for Christians whose experience is like that, where there was this whole life that they really have been pulled out of and kind of left behind in coming to Christ, I think these temptations may be all the more real particularly the, the social dynamic of it. If all of your friends um, were people that were living like this, and now you live a totally different way with a different king and a different set of, of standards, there's a very real uh, tension that comes in, in those relationships and maybe a, a distancing even from, from certain relationships and, and activities. And so I think that those temptations can be all the more pronounced if, that is, if your story is like that. And so arm yourselves for temptation. It's going to come. Think like Christ. Be ready for the temptation that's going to come. And remember uh, that the, the spirit of God lives in you. And he's called you to something new. And he's empowered you for something new. He's called you to a new way of life. He's caused you to be born again by the imperishable seed of the word of God. Back in chapter 1. And he's given you the ability by his indwelling spirit to fight back. Don't give in to temptation. Now, let me just say this about that. Um, the situation where somebody is uh, kind of trying to make a break from an old way of living uh, in order to follow Christ. There may or may not be an evangelistic opportunity here. I've heard people say, you know, or, or express the, the, the notion that like, well, they want to now that they know Christ, they want to keep hanging out with the same people and going to the same things they're going to so that they'll have opportunities to speak to them about Christ right, and preach the gospel to them. Maybe, OK, maybe there's an opportunity to do that. Um, but the emphasis in this passage is not to try to redeem these unholy gatherings. It's to abstain from them. It's to flee from them. Right. This is how the Gentiles live. This is how unbelievers live. You don't live this way anymore. Right. So Peter says, get out of there. Right. Get yourself up out of there and don't uh, sit in the seat of temptation. And so your thinking here with which you've armed yourself, remember, must take honest inventory of your weaknesses and the places, you know, that you are prone to be tempted. And that's true for all of us. We got to take a look at ourselves, know ourselves enough to be aware of where we're inclined towards sin, where we're more likely to stumble, even conditions, 
times of day, frames of mind, when I'm tired, when it's late, whatever, right? Maybe I'm more inclined to be enticed by certain kinds of sins. We need to know ourselves. We need to take inventory of our own weakness and then take action against it. Do what you got to do. Enlist a brother or a sister in the Lord to say, hey, help me fight this temptation. Go to Christ. Go to the Lord in prayer. Name the sin. Name the weakness. Plead with him for help. Go to his word. Memorize scripture verses that speak to that particular issue. There are ways that we can go about fighting against the temptation uh, that is, is sure to come our way. Arm yourselves for temptation. And that is, again, thinking like Christ about the temptation we know is coming. Don't be caught off guard by it. Set up the, the boundaries and the, and the safeguards that will help you to stand strong when temptation comes your way. And then the final exhortation that he gives in these verses, in verses 5 and 6, is this. Arm yourselves for judgment. Arm yourselves for judgment. And by that I mean the judgment, the final judgment judgment. Look at uh, verse 5, where he's spoken of the uh, the Gentiles, the unbelievers who are maligning you, mocking you, insulting you, because you're not joining with them in this flood of debauchery. And he says, of them, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. This is a courtroom scene. And the judge is surely God himself. Just as Peter has spoken of uh, in two different times in First Peter, back in chapter 1, verse 17, he spoke of uh, God as judge. Let me find that verse for you. Verse 1, chapter 17, excuse me, chapter 1, verse 17. He said, if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, then conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, right? So you, you, we're calling on him as father who judges. So that's God the father is the judge. And then back in chapter 2, verse 23, speaking of Jesus and how he endured his suffering, it says that he did not uh, revile in return, but when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Christ in his suffering uh, entrusted himself to God the Father because he knew this is all going to be made uh, plain on the day of judgment. He, he will be vindicated and sinners would be uh, seen, uh, would be put to shame, to use uh, Peter's own language. And it's a little bit like if you think of the immediate context here, the trial of uh, chapter 3, verse 15 and 16 is kind of reversed. So in, in chapter 315, he told, he told Christians, always be prepared to make a defense for a reason for the hope that is in you, right? To, to make a reason defense of the faith, uh, but do it with gentleness and respect, remembering that they're probably attacking, they're probably coming at you. How could you believe this? This is ridiculous, right? And so we're defending, if you will, our faith by, by sort of expressing the truth of what we believe. And now it's as though the trial is reversed. And those who were mocking us and putting us on trial, now they're the ones on trial. And God, the faithful judge and righteous judge, is the one uh, who they stand 
before. Those who malign Christians and their Lord in this age will find themselves face to face with the Lord. And they will be forced to give an account of their words and deeds. That is a fearful reality. That is a terrifying place to find yourself, to stand before the holy judge. When you have belittled and mocked God's people, God's gospel, God's character. And now God says, what do you have to say for yourselves? That's a terrifying place to be. But in the age to come, when, uh, excuse me, so in this age, here's what I was going to say. In this age, uh, unbelievers perhaps enjoy the, pr- the place of privilege, right? Christians are maybe outcasts. We're the weird ones, right? We, we're the outsiders. And, and the others, the unbelievers are the ones who have this place of privilege. Um, and they get to, you know, look down on us for our old-fashioned views or our backwards way of life or whatever it is. But in the age to come, when they stand before the judgment seat of God, their privilege will evaporate. And there will be nowhere to hide before the all-seeing eye of this holy judge. It's terrifying. It's a terrifying place to be. I'll quote Tom Schreiner one more time. He says that Peter reminds believers of the final judgment of all, assuring them that their perseverance in the faith matters and that those who practice evil will be assessed and condemned on the final day. Hence, they must not align themselves with the oppressors to escape discrimination, for soon the tables will be turned. Because there might be a temptation. Wow, it would be a lot easier to just believe the same thing that everybody around me believes, so they'll stop fussing at me. It would be a lot easier to just tweak my views, to just tweak the gospel a little bit, to soften parts of God's word that are uh, distasteful to our culture, so that we we can get along a little better. But Peter says, don't do that. Stand firm, stand strong. In the end, the tables will be turned. You will be vindicated and the enemies of God will be judged and condemned. That is the reality that is coming. Remember, injustice will be dealt with. If you look around you and you look at the, the things happening in our world, even things happening in your own life, and you are dismayed at the amount of brokenness and injustice and how long will the wicked prosper, remember, injustice will be dealt with. Hidden evils will be made plain and exposed. The judge of all the earth will do what is right, as Abraham declared back in Genesis chapter 18. The judge of all the earth will do what is right, And that is why, here's the final sort of word uh, today. That is why, he says in verse 6, the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. That though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The gospel was preached to those who are dead. This doesn't mean, this, this doesn't imply some kind of second chance theology, where once you die, you might hear the gospel again in hell or something and have a chance. So those who, going back to chapter 3, verse 19, see Christ going into hell and preaching the gospel there, kind of look at this verse and go, oh, look, so maybe these are the dead um, that are being preached to 
back in 319. But it, that doesn't work out for a lot of reasons that I'm not going to take the time to explain right now. But I think what, what Peter is saying here is that Christians who have died, they believe the gospel when they were alive and now they've passed away. Um, he is saying the gospel is preached to them, those who have now died, um, so that though they are judged in the flesh, that is, though they die, because all the wages of sin is death, all people die. That is a judgment on sin universally. Though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live by the Spirit the way God does. And I think Peter is using the very same He's using the same language here as he did of Christ in chapter 3, verse 19. Um, put to death in the flesh and made alive by the Spirit. I think he's doing the very same thing here of Christians. He's saying that they died. They believed the gospel and died, but they will be raised by the Spirit the way, and to live the way that God lives. And so I think he's pointing here again to the reality of resurrection. He's pointing to the truth that Christians who are faithful here to believe the gospel and to endure, even though they die, they will be raised. Christians, we have the eternal hope of new life, of resurrection life coming. And he wants us to see that and to hear that. Though judged in the flesh, they would be made alive by the spirit, the way that God lives. So friends, and he says, the God, this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead. So let me just remind you of the gospel. Jesus Christ bore your sins in the cross. Jesus came to live the life you could not live because you failed. You did not keep God's commands. You were not holy. In fact, you were an enemy of God, the word tells us. And Jesus Christ took up obedience in your place. And he died the death of a sinner to take our sins upon himself. When Jesus died, God the Father poured all of his wrath against our sin upon Christ. So Christ paid in full the penalty for our sins. And then God raised him from the dead, defeating death, defeating hell and Satan and all his enemy and all his minions and all his powers. And he has ascended to heaven where he sits at the right hand of God with all powers and authorities subjected to him. And he's coming back someday. And when he comes, he's going to take with him all of those who are his. And so we who are trusting in Jesus Christ for salvation have no need to fear the judgment. How do you arm yourself for judgment, you hide in Jesus Christ. We sing a hymn sometimes before the throne of God above that says, one with himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with him on high, with Christ, my Savior and my God. Friends, when you place your faith in Jesus, when you turn from your sin and you admit your need to be rescued, and you name Jesus Christ as Lord and as the one who conquered your sin and conquered death and invites you into new and eternal life. The Bible promises us you'll be saved. 
If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This is the glorious good news of the gospel. Eternal life in Jesus Christ is yours if you'll simply trust upon the Lord Jesus. If you haven't done that and you feel the Holy Spirit drawing you, you you want to know more, you want to make that decision or take that step, don't wait. Talk to somebody right now. You can call me and talk to me. You can talk to any other member of our church. Children, if you want to talk to, if that's your heart, talk to your parents. Let's take that step together of, of turning from sin and trusting in Jesus Christ so that we have no need to fear the judgment that's coming. Friends, this is how uh, God intends for us to be uh, encouraged and strengthened in these days, in this season that we face. We are to arm ourselves with the, with the Christ-like way of thinking, arm ourselves for suffering, knowing that it's going to come and preparing for it. Arm ourselves for temptation, not being surprised when we're lured toward sin and and wickedness that would uh, harm our souls, that would harm our witness to Christ, and that dishonors God himself. Arm yourself for temptation and arm yourself for judgment by hiding in Jesus Christ, trusting him alone to be your savior. Well, we don't have the chance to do our discussion that, that we would have done, but I, so let me just kind of leave you with a few questions uh, to ponder uh, in, in your own time. Um, I wonder if, here's a couple questions. When we're thinking about suffering, um, do you think that Christians in America have an adequate theology of suffering? And what are some negative effects of anemia in this area? Um, so maybe don't think of it necessarily in terms of like Christians in America, but like just yourself or our church, right? Think more immediately. Do we have a good theology of suffering? Do we have an understanding uh, that we are not owed a life of ease and that when suffering comes, we're able to withstand it, to endure it because we have uh, our feet grounded upon the gospel. We have what we need in place. Another question, more about, more about temptation. Excuse me. How might arming yourself with Christ-like thinking help you to prepare for temptation? Knowing that it's coming, how do we train our minds to be ready for it when it comes? What steps could you take to fight temptation in advance so that we're not just caught off guard by, whoa, temptation is there. I didn't expect that. What am I going to do with it? but we're ready for it. We've got safeguards in place. What steps can you take? What safeguards can you put in place to guard against temptation uh, when it comes? And finally, going back to that, uh, the way that the, the world lives, the way that you used to live, right? And now the way that, call, that Christ calls us to live. When you think about who you were and who you are now because of Christ, how does that make you feel about God's grace? How does, that, um, how does that make you feel about the gospel and what it's done for you, what it's provided for you, and the hope that it can still offer you even in the midst of temptation? Do you think unbelievers in your life can tell the difference between the old you and the new you? 
Because I think that's what it calls us to, right? Don't live like that anymore. Live for the will of God. So how are we doing on that? It's another kind of self-assessment question. How are you doing living for the will of God more than for your own desires and passions?